Coming up on today's episode of the Rami LaVie podcast, we recap the MLB trade deadline and remember the legend that was Vin Scully. The NFL starts tonight as well, so we will have some NFL topics for you going into the Hall of Fame game. All that and more coming up next. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I often talk on this podcast about breaking the stigma surrounding mental health. So if you're feeling stressed, depressed, or just want to talk, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed, experienced therapist online, and you have access to over 20,000 different therapists that you may not have access to in your area. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire, and 48 hours later, you're set up with a therapist that fits your needs. You can then schedule video or phone calls and have access to unlimited messages back and forth with your experience experienced therapist. You can also change to a new therapist at any time with no extra charge. I often talk on this podcast about how perspective is anything, and that's something I learned in therapy. I had terrible anxiety, and I learned about how changing your perspective can change the reality. So take charge of your mental health and join the over 2 million people who already use BetterHelp for therapy online today. And if you use my code, you can get an extra 10% off on your first month. So go to betterhelp.com Rami for 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R help h-e-l-p dot com slash rami for 10% off your first month do it today welcome back to the rami la vie podcast presented by BetterHelp. go to betterhelp.com slash rami that's my first name r-a-m-i for 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash Rami. All right, episode 84 of the Rami Lavi podcast. We had a busy week in Major League Baseball with the trade deadline on Tuesday. And then we got some news late Tuesday night, some sad news. And for someone in my industry, I want to start with this because this is the person who is the gold standard. This is the person that everyone looks up to in the industry. And we learned of the sad passing of the great Vince Scully. And of course, he was an older man. He was 94 years old. He lived just an incredible life as a baseball broadcaster, but as a person. Um, And so we're definitely going to talk about him a little bit more later in the show. But I just wanted to open the show with that because he is the gold standard of broadcasting, what I'm trying to do in my life, what I'm trying to do in this industry, in my career. He's the guy that everyone I look up to looks up to. So uh, just wanted to start off with that and just you know condolences to the family obviously but it's a celebration of life of the amazing career and life of Vince Scully because as amazing as he was in the industry everyone who's met him everyone who's ever had an interaction with him says the same thing he was a hall of fame broadcaster the greatest broadcaster of all time but even a better person and that's something that you know, people throw that around a lot, but with him, it, it definitely seemed true. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. I also did want to recap some of the trade deadline. We saw a lot of moves. 
we were hearing rumblings a couple of weeks ago, starting maybe last week. Hey, this is going to be one of the craziest trade deadlines ever. This is going to be one of the most nutty trade deadlines we've seen in a long time. And when is that ever true? When does it ever actually live up to the hype? Never, right? Well, guess what? This time it might have actually lived up to the hype. It's been pretty crazy. And it all happened really in one day in a matter of a few hours. I actually was on a podcast on, I want to say Tuesday. I guess it was Tuesday because that was the day of the well, it was the day before the trade deadline, so maybe it was Monday. Um, I was on a podcast, my friend's podcast, uh, Julian. He has uh, out in the field, and we were talking about the trade deadline and what might happen, what might not happen, and then all of a sudden, we get off offline. We're not on the podcast anymore, and maybe a couple hours later, everything started dropping. Things started coming flying in, um, and then from that point on, so that was about 3 o'clock on Monday, and then from that point on, it was rapid fire, everything coming in one after another. Uh, till the deadline, right up until the deadline, the Yankees had a buzzer beater trade at the end of it, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But I wanted to start with something else, and this might be an interesting place to start uh, because there's really no reason to talk about it anymore, and it's kind of what I've been saying. But I just want to wrap a bow on this, and that's Joey Gallo. Um, another can- article came out about Joey Gallo. We talked about the one that Lindsay Adler wrote. I talked about it with Julian, how it's just weird. It felt like an exit interview before he was even off the team. And then another article came out while he was still on the team, um, just on NJ.com, talking about how he couldn't ever leave his house and the things that we suspected, but how, you know, it really was almost like blaming the fans for his poor play and almost like, yeah, I just need to get out of here so bad because this is just such an awful situation for me. And it wasn't my fault, but it was just a terrible situation that I couldn't handle. And you see, this was a guy who obviously couldn't handle New York, like, I, I get that and I'm not saying he's a bad dude and I've said all the good things, but like the reaction to this story is like, wow, we feel so terrible for him. We want him to do so well. And all of a sudden he's like guilting Yankee fans and Yankee fans are getting dragged on Twitter like, oh, wow, this is what you do to your players. This is why they can't play there. They need to leave because you guys drag guys like this. This has nothing to do with that. Like Michael K put it perfectly and I, I want to get to him in a second, but there are so many guys who got booed by Yankee fans and guess what? They either get over it or they move on. Like Sonny Gray is a guy who couldn't handle it. You talk about Giancarlo Stanton, he's answered the call every single time. Guys are still booing him as recently as last year. Guys were booing him when he strikes out a lot. He probably still hears some boos. And he's been one of the most productive Yankees and definitely one of the most clutch Yankees, if not the most clutch Yankees, over the last four years. Like since he got here in 2018, he might have been the most he might be the most clutch player on the team. And he still gets the booze. He got the booze from day one. He got the booze in his very first game at Yankee Stadium. So it's not like this is a guy who is playing really well and he's getting booed for merciless, mercilessly for no reason. No, this is a guy who's played really poorly and has rightfully heard the booze. And like to act now, like to cry before you even off the team, like that much must be such an awkward conversation in the dugout. They said the night before the trade deadline, after the game, he was already packing his stuff and leaving because he was so sure he was getting traded the next day. Like. I don't think we've ever seen a situation like that. He wasn't in the dugout the last night before uh, the the trade deadline, that last game. I I didn't see him in the dugout at least. And I kept asking on Twitter, anyone see Joey Gallo? And I haven't heard any responses, but I didn't see him there at all. And then he shows up in LA the next day and he's already got a bit of a beard. So he said, yeah, he started cheating and grew his beard a couple days early. That means he probably wasn't in the dugout the last couple games. He probably was hiding out somewhere. And if he was packing his stuff, he was probably doing it during the game when there's no media and no other players in the locker room because it's awkward. It's weird. Like he's getting ready to go when he's still on the team. And but like this whole thing about, oh, wow, Joey Gallo is like 
he's he's such a great dude and the Yankee fans ruined him and he's a great player and no he's not like he had a terrible terrible and and like I just I'm gonna just throw this in there because Michael K said it best said it better than I can say it the thing that I didn't like, the story that came out today from NJ.com, you know, he's kind of like looking as if he was um, really uh, the, the, the guy who was put upon the most and the, the, the fans really got to him. Let's be honest here. He has the worst 501 at-bats of any Yankee position player in their history. He had 159. They did not go out of their way to boo a guy that was actually doing a decent job. He was a failure here in New York for whatever reason, whether the pressure of having to win became a big deal, whether he just got his swing out of whack because he mentally was not right while he was here. He deserved to be booed. I don't think the fans were extra special hard on him. I look at what the fans did to Giancarlo Stanton when he first got here. That was unfair. I mean, the first game that he ever played here, they booed him. This guy earned the boos. Look at look at these numbers. In the last 29 games, he had 085, and I feel sorry for him. I truly do. He's not a bad guy. He didn't treat anybody poorly. But the woe is me attitude, like the fans drove him out of New York. No, no, no. If you hit and you hit the 40 home runs that you were supposed to hit, they would not have booed you. If you didn't hit 159, they would not have booed you. And like I said, he he mentions Giancarlo Stanton there, who was also booed a ton and still gets booed sometimes. Like, this is not the same. This is not that situation. This is more like Sonny Gray. This is a guy who couldn't handle it. And Sonny Gray, everyone was rooting for him. He was a big deadline pickup. And not only that, everyone was rooting for Joey Gallo. Everyone wanted Joey Gallo to do well. In fact, the last couple of months, and you look at those numbers that he had over the last 29 games as a Yankee, right? Those are the big numbers that Michael Kay brought up at the end, where he batted 085. 0.85 in 29 games, three home runs, six RBIs, and 35 strikeouts. I mean, those numbers are awful. Those numbers are so, so bad. That's not even, I mean, that's not even a minor leaguer. That's the worst player in baseball by far. And he's crying that he was booed too much. And like, this is a guy also during that time over those last 30 games, every time he came to the plate, the entire crowd would start chanting, Joey Gallo. The Yankee fans were dying for Joey Gallo to do well. They really wanted him to be productive. They loved him and Rizzo, the the Italian Stallions. They wanted him to do well. Yankee fans actually were rooting for him more than they've rooted for almost any other player. And I think the epitome of his career in Yankee Stadium as a Yankee player was his last game at Yankee Stadium where he had four at-bats. Each one of the four at-bats, the entire at-bat, the whole stadium is chanting, Joey Gallo, like really wants him to do well. And then he strikes out in the whole stadium. Boo. Like, but that's what happens. That's it's not a it's not that nobody doesn't like him. It's not that anyone wants him to do poorly. Everyone roots for their players and roots for their teams. And he's actually one of the most likable guys on the team. He's one of the guys that people actually really liked and really wanted to do well more than any other player. In the field randomly, they start chanting his name. Yankee fans really supported this guy and wanted him to do well and they booed his play on the field and that's the only thing they booed I don't even believe and maybe there are some Yankee fans who are awful who are heckling him in the street I would be embarrassed to show my face in the street not because I would get heckled by the Yankee fans but because I was batting 085 because I was playing this terribly because I was expected to be this guy who was going to help the team and I was awful and clearly, he was bringing that baggage to the plate every single time he stepped up to the plate. And that's why he was thinking too much and his swing was out of whack and everything. But it's a guy who should be embarrassed that he didn't try and change his approach. And do I think he's going to hit a huge home run in the postseason for the Dodgers? Probably. 
And is everyone going to come at the Yankee fans and say, oh, this is the guy you ran out of town? No, we didn't run him out of town. Like Michael Kay said it best. And people are coming at Michael Kay for saying it on the, on the Yankee broadcast. Yeah, it's a little weird that he did it on the Yankee broadcast. If he did that on the Michael Kay show, that would be pretty much normal. He does that all the time on his show. But the fact they did it on the broadcast made it a little bit interesting, a little bit different. But still, it it's, has nothing, nothing to do with a guy who wanted out of here so badly he packed up early and left before he was even traded. That's the guy that we ran out of town. No, it's a guy who couldn't handle it at all. It's a guy who the Yankee fans were wanted nothing more than success for him. And unfortunately, he didn't get it. I, I wish he succeeded. I really do. Like, I just went back and watched a video that he had during spring training where he was mic'd up. He had a couple hits in that game also. Like, that's a guy that you want. That's a guy. He was He's a cool, awesome guy. But that guy disappeared the last two months especially. Once he started doing poorly, he clearly could not handle it. And I feel bad for the guy. I'm rooting for the guy. I want him to do well. But don't put this on Yankee fans or the Yankees for running at him out of town. This was solely on him. I think the big winners of the trade deadline are the San Diego Padres. I don't think you could say anything otherwise. If you look at their two through six hitters in the lineup last night, three of the five guys were acquired at this trade deadline. Josh Bell, Juan Soto, and Brendan Drury. Of course, Drury in his first at-bat hits a grand slam to make it 5 nothing, And it felt like, oh my God, these guys may never lose. So let's start with the Soto and Bell situation. They get Juan Soto and Josh Bell from the Nationals. It was rumored all day that that was going to happen. It seemed to be slowing down. Nobody knew what was holding it up. Eventually, the trade goes through and Eric Hosmer is in the trade. And then he held it up, which was awesome. People were saying that Hosmer wasn't actually holding up the trade because the trade was going to go through one way or another. Just he had a no trade clause. And that's what you use a no trade clause for. I've been to San Diego. It's awesome. I've seen winning teams. It's awesome. Going from San Diego and that situation to D.C. and that situation, yeah, I would want to dispute that trade also. He ends up going to Boston, which if you're a sports guy, it's a great sports town, so you can't be mad about that. But it was kind of funny if that would have thrown a wrench in the whole thing. But you get one of the best players in baseball, a 23-year-old outfielder, left-handed hitter who's already proven to be one of the best players in baseball. And by the way, he's been the hottest player in baseball since the all-star game so it's not been Aaron Judge a lot of people probably think it is Aaron Judge but no it's actually been Juan Soto you take a guy out of the lineup like a lineup that he was in in Washington where he had no help no protection aside from a guy like Josh Bell who's now coming with him um, and you put him in a lineup like San Diego's lineup yeah it's going to be scary it's going to be nuts that lineup is going to be incredible and then at the end of the game all they need to do is have a lead and Josh Hader will shut it down because they get Josh Hader also but then they get Brendan Drury because why not throw in Brendan Drury because he's a guy who the Yankees could have used a lot of teams wanted he's a utility guy but the San Diego Padres said no not only are we going to get everyone we're going to make sure no one else gets anyone we're going to get every single player and the Voight situation is interesting because Luke Voight uh, I'm a Luke Voight fan as a Yankee fan he was one of the more fan favorite guys here and I know he's had a somewhat struggling start to his career in San Diego was on and off, kind of like his career in New York, but I think he's a guy that actually people liked in San Diego, and so it's a shame he ends up in Washington because that's a, just a bad situation, but maybe he could go there and mash and put up numbers and no pressure, and maybe he will end up doing well in D.C., and apparently they got a haul. I, I don't know what that means, but we'll get to D.C. a little bit later. I want to start with the Padres and go through exactly what they've done over the last few months. And by the way, I love Don Orsillo. He's one of my favorite broadcasters. I talked at the top of the show about, you know, my idols. 
he's one of them. He's one of the best broadcasters in sports right now. And him with the Brandon Drury call, I'm so happy for him. The Slam Diego. Anyway, it was, it was pretty awesome. I, I can't deny that. I don't hate the Padres, honestly. Like, I'm happy it wasn't the Dodgers or it wasn't the Red Sox or it wasn't any team in the American League, especially not the Astros. You know what I mean? So I, I don't really mind that's the Padres. Do I wish the Yankees traded for him? Juan Soto, that is. Yeah, of course. Do I wish they traded for Brennan Drury? Sure. Yeah, I would have liked Josh Hader too, but I can't hate that he went to San Diego. But you think about what the Padres have done. They get Soto, Bell, and Drury at this deadline, and Hayter also. Before that, in spring training, they get Mayena, Sean Mayena from the A's, the starting pitcher. They got Manny Machado. They got Joe Musgrove in a trade. They got you Darvish. They got Blake Snell. They signed Mike Clevenger. This is a team that, no matter who they put out there, they are willing to trade all their top prospects because they're willing to sign and trade whoever they want, whenever they want. They're going to go for it. This is a city, a team that loves being a sports franchise. And if you own a sports team, you should be this competitive. You should want to win all the time. And you should always want to say, I'm going for the guy no matter what. I want to go for this guy. I want to go for every last freaking player that could possibly make this team better. And you know why they looked at these prospects, which apparently was a haul, and they sent it back to Washington and said, we don't care? Because they signed all these guys. You want to talk about buying championships. If they win, yeah, this championship would probably be bought but no one would fault them if every sports team did this sports would be more fun if every franchise looked around and said hey how could we possibly get our teams to be better and let's do this let's constantly be trying to improve our team and when you're a borderline team let's go for it let's become a championship team like the Braves did last year that's awesome that's what sports is about so when you look at the Baltimore Orioles for example and they traded off pieces and some fans were upset about that yeah I get why you're upset like I don't think the Orioles were winning a championship this year, but if they were buyers, maybe they could have gotten a starting pitcher. Maybe they could have gotten another guy. Does it is it worth mortgaging the future? No, not necessarily. So yeah, there's two sides to it. But if you're close enough and you're like the Padres where you really feel like you have a legitimate chance, but you're in a division with one of the best teams ever also, the Dodgers who treat baseball the same way where they're just going to go for it every time. Yeah, of course you go for it. Of course you go for Juan Soto. Of course you go for every guy they've went for. It's awesome. And they might not even win this division. Like I said, they have a huge deficit to make up to the Dodgers, and the Dodgers are really good. So I don't think the Padres are going to win the division. Hey, they haven't won a World Series yet. I don't even think they made the playoffs last year. But does any of that matter? None of that matters, right? Because at the end of the day, they're going for it, and they're going to put themselves in the best position to try and win. So it's not going to be for lack of trying if they don't win. It's going to be because of other circumstances, because that's baseball, Susan, because you can't predict the game. You can't buy championships. But you could do everything within your power to try. And that's what they're going to keep doing. And I love it. An interesting story that happened was the Pittsburgh fans, speaking of teams that are just trying to sell off pieces. And I think Pittsburgh might have a pretty bright future. Um, when you look at O'Neill Cruz at shortstop and what he's been doing lately, it's been insane. But a fan went to take a picture with the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he opens up his jersey as he gets to the front of the line. And it says he's wearing a T-shirt underneath that says sell the team. Uh, he looks at the guy and the, the guy and the owner kind of look at each other. The owner kind of looks like he's about to cry, but he just smiles and takes the picture anyway. I, I, it was obviously hilarious. Like, let's get that out of the way. But I wrote on Twitter that was low key, a little bit cringe because it's just like the guy, just the owner, he, he can handle it. He's a billionaire owner. who's not willing to spell spend on his team. Like, I don't feel bad for him, but he kind of looks over, looked a little bit sad. He's like, yeah, smiles, takes the picture anyway. Kind of a nice guy. Kind of feel bad in the moment. I'm getting 
attacked on Twitter for it. People are coming at me, going through my social media and uh, bringing up terrible things about me. I don't know. Who cares? I love trolls. I've actually gotten thank you to my troll who's back actually and we'll get back to him a little bit later. And he's my number one fan. He listens to every episode and every podcast and he knows me better than anyone. He knows me better than my own mother. Like he's writes back my own takes to me on Twitter all the time. So welcome back. I appreciate you. It's a shame you were gone so long and maybe you can help these other trolls kind of lay off me a little bit. That'll be helpful. (laughs) But But thanks to him, I've learned how to handle the trolls better. Speaking of Twitter, the Oriole fans are outlashing on Twitter against their team, their owner, their general manager, because they traded away Trey Mancini. They traded away Jorge Lopez. Now, Trey Mancini, no matter what you think, he's not their best hitter. He wasn't having a great power season because he doesn't have power like that. His power usually came from the short porch that they had in left field that he was able to hit a ton of home runs that way. And in his first game in Houston, he hits a home run to that shorter porch in left field in Houston. And by the way, that would have been a fly out. It went 374 feet. The wall in in Baltimore is now like 390. So it went 374 feet would have been a fly out in Baltimore. Instead, it's a home run in Houston. And I'm not faulting him. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have built the wall or anything like that. That's, That's great. I'm happy for Trey Mancini. Oriole fans are upset because you traded a guy who was the highest average hitting player on the team, even when he was at 268 when they traded him. He obviously has a huge place, a huge role in the community, and everyone loves him, and it's sad that he had to go. But if you got something back for him for a half a season, a Trey Mancini wasn't going to be the difference between you making the wild card and making the World Series and not. Like I said, this bullpen was loaded. The pieces that you got moving forward for Jorge Lopez are probably bringing you closer to a championship than the pieces you didn't get. And by the way, I thought this team would implode after losing two players who are a big part of the culture and a big part of the chemistry. And this is a team that's built on chemistry more than any other team I've ever seen in my life. And guess what? They didn't implode. They didn't fall apart. Instead, the opposite happened. They went out and swept the Rangers in Texas. That's awesome. This is what this team's built on. They get a guy like Brett Phillips to come in, who's not a great baseball player, but he is one of those mojo guys. He is one of those guys. His baseball is fun thing. His chemistry that is what he's there for so I think it's awesome I think the Orioles are in a great spot for their organization like I said do I want all teams to always go for it yeah but you're a couple games out of the wild card but there's so many teams in between you and that wild card spot do you really think you're jumping those teams do you really think you're jumping the Blue Jays or the Guardians or the White Sox or the Mariners or the Rays or any of those teams probably not all those teams are probably better than you So you go out there, you didn't trade off the entire franchise. Like I said, I didn't want to see them move Anthony Santander because he could be a piece for the future. I want to see them give a long-term contract to Cedric Mullins. I want to see them sign Austin Hayes to a long-term deal. I want to see them make Adley officially the face of the franchise. I want to see them go get pitching in the offseason and see what they can do because they've overachieved this year and it's been fun. But at the same time, if they still make a wild card run, that would be fun. Look, the Yankees did this in 2016. They traded away Chapman. They traded away... Uh, Miller, they trade away both those guys who are the back end of the bullpen, the top two pieces in the bullpen. They signed back Chapman the next year, right? Like they still went for the wild card that year. They were still trying to make the wild card. They still tried to make a push at the wild card in 2016 after trading away those guys. Yeah, that happened. And they finished the season with what, like 86 wins, something like that. And they finished over 500 and they missed the playoffs by a few games, but they came back the next year and they were great. And guess who's a huge part of their team now? Glaber Torres is a huge part of their team. A guy they got back. Yeah, it didn't really work out with Clint Frazier. That's unfortunate. But Miguel Andujar had that one year that was huge also. Like everyone needs to calm down with what happens in the moment because 
it might not be the difference between a championship and not a championship this year, but it could lead you to a championship down the road if one of those pitchers, one of those guys you got in return gives you a huge push. And it's not like the Orioles told their team and told their fans, we're giving up on you. We don't value what you do. We don't think you could win this year. I think those players in that locker room still think they could win. I still think they believe in themselves. Like I said, Trey Mancini didn't even have a spot on this team, really. If you look at right field with Santander and Hayes, you look at first base with Mountcastle, this is a guy who wasn't going to be part of the long-term plans. He's not a DH. He's not a he's not a world-class hitter. He's a guy who, unfortunately, is really connected with the community and everyone loves, but he wasn't the difference for you between a championship and not. And that's why it made sense to get what you could for him while you had that opportunity to do it and you can still compete like they did over this past week and hopefully they'll continue to compete the rest of the year and build momentum going into next season that'll be awesome as far as the nationals because they're the team that really traded off everyone but this is insane you think about who, the guys that they lost on this team over the last few years bryce harper anthony rendon max scherzer trey turner and juan soto those five players are a World Series caliber team. You put those five players on any team and you build around them with whatever and you have a chance to win a World Series. Now, I know the way they won the World Series already and they won it without Bryce Harper and they immediately lost Rendon after that and the Rendon contract, yes, it's been terrible by the Angels. Harper's contract, I don't know, he won the MVP last year but he's been hurt by in Philly also. Max was older already when they traded him so were you giving him $50 million to rot on a bad team now? No, you could explain away everything, but Trey Turner and Juan Soto, there's no explaining to do. Did they need to trade those guys? I don't think they needed to trade either one of them. I don't think Juan Soto is signing the extension tomorrow with the San Diego Padres. Like this whole thing that he didn't want to sign with the with the Nationals. Like maybe that's not true. Like he wasn't going to sign the contract, especially not now with the Nationals, but in the next two and a half years, if you worked on building your team back up and trying to make your team good again, instead of just selling everyone off then maybe he does sign with the Nationals in two and a half years. Like, I don't think he's going to actually sign a free agent contract before he has free agency anyway. Now, would it shock me if tomorrow he signed a 15-year, $600 million contract at the Padres? No, that wouldn't shock me. But I do think Scott Boris wants him to go to free agency because that's good for Scott Boris, it's good for Juan Soto, and it's good for all of Scott Boris' other clients. This is how he plays the game. So I don't think this has anything to do with, like, you panicked and you traded him right away. I, I, I don't understand that. So I really don't understand why you trade a 23-year-old who's a generational talent. We don't know what these prospects are. But let's say one or two of them work out. Do you think they work out to the extent that the next 15 years of Juan Soto is worth? I don't know. Prospects are just that. They're question marks. And I know prospects in baseball, we value them differently than we look at first-round picks in football where it's like, if we get five first-round picks, that's awesome. First-round picks in basketball, we look at differently. Top 10 picks especially. In baseball, these guys are unknown. We don't know them. We're not exposed to them. And that doesn't mean they're good or bad, but eventually we find out, like I said with the Yankees, really, Glaber Torres is the only guy who came back in that trade who's contributing for this team. And I know they eventually get Chapman back, but what are we doing if you're the Nationals? And this is something interesting, an interesting conversation about anything. The Nationals win the championship, right? And then they lose. The year after, they lose. They're, they're, they are going to be incredible losers coming up as they go through this rebuild process. They might not win 55 games this year. Is it worth winning a championship for all those losing seasons? Is it worth that one championship? 
are they looking at this? Do the fans in DC look at this like, hey, we got our championship, like this sucks, but we really got our championship and let's try and, you know, build it back up, build it from the bottom up like we did for that championship and win it again. I don't know how you look at it. Like, I'm a Yankee fan. I haven't seen a losing season in my lifetime, but there's only one championship I vividly remember. That's 2009. So do I really value being in the playoffs year in and year out every year, never missing it more than I value having a couple of championships in the last year? Would I have rathered one in 2017 or 2019? Probably some disappointing seasons. Like, yeah, I guess every summer I have fun every summer. I know the Yankees are in it. It's going to be fun. And in September, October, there's a late postseason push and a postseason run, but every year it's ended in disappointment. Every offseason, I'm upset. Every offseason, I'm, oh my God, if they just did this, if they just did that, this could have happened, that could have happened. So is one World Series championship better than just ending in, and, and ending the season a couple times in September at the end of the regular season better? Or probably ending it early, like end of August, you know you're out of it already? Better than no championships and constantly being relevant? I don't know. It's, a, it's an all-time debate, but for the Nationals, I don't think they needed to choose one or the other. They had a young championship team in place only three years ago, and now they're all gone. And that, to me, is insane. That is terrible, terrible mismanagement of assets, terrible mismanagement of a team. And they should sell the team they do not deserve to own a professional sports franchise. Speaking of my Yankees, they actually had a really good trade deadline Um, And we'll get into it now. Obviously, the end of it kind of left a bad taste in your mouth. And because they weren't the ones who got Juan Soto, they're not looked at as the major winners. They also didn't get Hayter or Bell or Drury. So, yes, they're not the Padres. But in any other year, people would be celebrating the Yankees and what they did. Now, they also lost out on probably the number one guy they wanted, which was Luis Castillo. So there was so much disappointment in what the Yankees didn't get with Juan Soto and Luis Castillo because two of those players were available and one goes to Seattle and then immediately dominates the Yankees the next day. And then the other one goes to San Diego with a team that's already stacked and loaded. So I think there might be more disappointment than there actually is happiness that the Yankees had a really good deadline. But if you look at it, they get Frankie Montas, who outside of Castillo was by far the best pitching prospect or the best pitcher available on the market. They get Trevino with him, which not Trevino, it's spelled differently. He's a closer who has a 70 RA this year, but has had success in the past and has been good in the past. And they hope Matt Blake can fix him like he's done with Clay Holmes and a bunch of other guys. They get Benintendi, who was the number one bat they wanted and the number one bat who was assumed to be on the market before Juan Soto was moved. And they get this other guy, Scott Efros, who's just another project of Brian Cashman's, who's like plucking these young relievers who you know nothing about, and then all of a sudden you look and you're like, hey, this guy's a 2.2 ERA or whatever it is. So I'm happy for that. Those are all great things. They did exactly what every Yankee fan wanted them to do until 6 p.m., the day of the deadline. Because that's when they traded Jordan Montgomery for Harrison Bader. And this is not anti-Harrison Bader. Harrison Bader is a center fielder from the Cardinals. He's got speed. He's got some pop. He's a good player. He's an excellent fielder. All that's good. I get that. You're going to want him to steal base, be a defensive replacement, maybe even takes over the Aaron Hicks spot because Hicks has been so awful. But he's also injured for the next couple of months. And then they also announced that Luis Severino is moving to the 60-day IL, which means he's not coming back at least till the middle of September. But Jordan Montgomery, why are you trading that guy? You needed starting pitching. And 
no matter what you say about Jordan Montgomery, you could talk about everyone in the pitching rotation. If you had to use one word to describe each pitcher in the pitching rotation of the New York Yankees, the word you would use to describe Jordan Montgomery is reliable. And he's the only one you can say that about. Consistency and reliability, start after start after start. He only had three starts this year. We gave up three or more runs. I know his last two starts didn't look good. I know that he had the kind of run-in with Aaron Boone, it seemed like, after the last two starts when he pulled him early. And they said, yeah, he's gonna. we're going to have to think about putting him on an innings limit. And there were all these issues with him. None of it made sense. Like, did you not find a trade partner for Domingo Herman because you would have had to cut him if you didn't find a trade partner? Cut him. He has a 70 RA. Like, Herman didn't have any options left, so you couldn't send him back to the minors. So because they couldn't trade him, they needed to keep him up. Like, this was such a, like, a quote-unquote savvy roster Brian Cashman move that he needed the roster space, so he moved Severino to the IL, and he traded one of your best pitchers, one of your guys who's most reliable. And with Cole imploding the way he imploded the other day, and who knows what's going to happen with Nestor Cortez. He's never pitched this number of innings in his life. Jamison Tyone has completely fallen off. Severino's hurt. Montas was hurt earlier this year, by the way. So the one downside with Montas is he's been hurt this year. And he trade away the guy who his number one staple and his number one trade is reliability. What are we doing if you're the Yankees? And now it came out that they were trying to trade for Pablo Lopez, who's a really great starting pitcher and probably would be the best starting pitcher in the rotation today if you traded for him from Miami. And they were going to try and try to send Glaber Torres to Miami for him. And that would have made sense as a follow-up move. But that fell through. So what are we doing here? Like the Yankees have some serious question marks that they need to work out in the next two months before they head into the playoffs. They need to figure out who their closer is. Yeah, they got all these pieces in the bullpen. I, I really think what they did for the bullpen was excellent. Adding Efros, adding Trevino. That's good. Chapman's coming back. Britain's coming back. Loiza goes looked good lately. Clay Holmes, you assume, will revert back to normal a little bit. Figure out who's your closer. Who's the guy that you want in the ninth inning to slam the door? You don't have a Josh Hader. You don't have a Mariano Rivera who you can rely on at the end of games. And what's your starting rotation if you're going into a playoff series today? Do you trust Garrett Cole? I don't. He's going to talk about how after his start on Wednesday, well, the second half of the start, after the first inning, he gave up the six runs, but then he was really good. He retired 15 of the next 17 hitters. He struck out nine of them. Whoop to freaking do. Who cares? This guy, every time, is always looking at the positive spots. And Yeah, well, I did this and I did that. You did nothing. You're unreliable. In the biggest games, you lose. It's just insane. Um, I don't know what to say. There's not much else to say about Garrett Cole, but other than you can't rely on him in a big game. You can't rely on him in a game one. You can't rely on him in a game seven or a pivotal game. So who's starting for you? Frankie Montas, who's been inconsistent? but at the same time has also been hurt, so he might get hurt again. Are you building up Luis Severino? Or are you making him your closer? Because you're only going to have about two weeks from when he comes back from the disabled list to build him up to be a starter for the rest of the season. So is he going to be starting games in the playoffs? Or is he going to be your closer? Like, what happens there? And a lack of communication. Boone kept saying, yeah, Severino was really caught off guard by being moved to the 60-day IL. He also said, yeah, you know, uh, we were really caught off guard that Montgomery was traded. He was caught off guard also. Like, what? All this is just really weird. 
And if it's clearing a spot in the rotation for Clark Schmidt to come back up and be a starter, because he's getting another start in the minor leagues, they're trying to build him up. And he's been really good at the major league level. And this is finally the time that they decided, you know what, this is the guy, he's ready to be our starter. Then great, because he could come up for the next two months and honestly be one of the best starters on this team. I truly believe that. I think he could be one of the best starters in this Yankee rotation if he came up tomorrow. And maybe he starts a huge playoff game for you. I don't know. But if that's not the answer, then I don't know what is. And I'm really confused. And Cashman always needs to be the smartest guy in the room. This is his thing. He always wants to be the smartest guy in the room. And he didn't give up any of the huge prospects this deadline. He got rid of a guy who eventually was going to they were going to lose in the Rule 5 draft anyway. And he cleared up some sort of roster situation by moving Severino to the 60 and trading away Jordan Montgomery. But in a league where you can never have enough starting pitching, you got rid of two starting pitchers on the trade deadline when you're supposed to be adding starting pitchers. Makes no sense to me at all. As far as Tuesday night, I was sure they were going to win. The game they lost 8-6 to Seattle. And that really is the difference between this team and any other team. And Gleyber Torres got hosed on the first call and then struck out to end the ball game with the bases loaded. But that's what's awesome about this team. Especially when you have Stanton back. I do think this team is never out of a game. They're always in it. This lineup is so deep. And so there's a lot of positives here with the Yankees. I'm not complaining too much. But the pitching is really puzzling. And that's what scares me going forward. Now, if you go across town, and I want to talk about them for a minute, is the Mets. I think here's where the Mets messed up. Because Mets fans are going insane. They hate what they did at the deadline. They're really upset about what the Mets did. And I could be wrong about this. But here's where, if I had to guess, I think they messed up. The Mets probably asked for Contreras with Robertson. They wanted David Robertson, but they wanted Contreras with him. And now the Cubs are idiots. If you're selling, if you're getting rid of your players and you're not being good anyway, you're just going to let Wilson Contreras walk in free agency this year because you didn't get a quote-unquote good enough deal for him? Like, he was already gone. Like, the fans already, like, were okay with it. They lost Anthony Rizzo last year. They lost Chris Bryant a couple years ago. They've already come to terms that this team isn't competing anymore, right? The way we'd come to expect them to compete a couple years ago. So why hold on to Wilson Contreras? Why hug that player who's not helping you win this year? He's not bringing you closer to a championship any more this year. So that was weird for me. But maybe the Mets were so focused on getting Contreras with David Robertson and still holding on to some of their top prospects that they don't end up getting either one of them. If they had just asked for Robertson, maybe they do end up getting him, and then he ends up going to Philadelphia or wherever he went. The point is, the Mets don't get him. And so I think the Mets might have mismanaged this in where they were asking for a ton, and that's why they ultimately didn't get the even the small pieces now they, that they wanted. Now, they do get Michael Givens, who was terrible in his first start or first relief appearance for the Mets. They get Daniel Vogelbach, who's actually been great since he's come back. So... They do have some strong pieces there. Yeah, they, they, they had a decent trade deadline. I, I don't think it's as bad as Met fans like to complain about. But I think they messed up. They still have a guy like Dom Smith, who's an asset, who probably has more value now than he's had in a long time. But yet, you're not using that guy anymore. So why are you holding on to that piece? Why are you hugging prospects and ultimately not getting the pieces you want and getting outbid for a guy like David Robertson because you were so dead set on getting Contreras with him and holding on to certain pieces. I think the Mets really messed up, but then they'll go ahead and tell you, 
well, you know, getting DeGrom back from the injured list is the ultimate, that's the biggest trade deadline piece we could get was getting DeGrom back. I'm glad it wasn't my team doing that. I, gra- I'm gl- I said the Yankees might do that. I'm glad it wasn't the Yankees doing it. Speaking of, DeGrom came back and as a sports fan, I'm a Yankee fan, but I'm a sports fan. I watch DeGrom. I love it. I love seeing him start. I love seeing him play. He's the most dominant pitcher of our lifetime. And so I'm really happy to see him. Like, I really love to see him back. That's awesome. It's awesome for the game. And he pitched really well. But I think the Nationals, after trading Juan Soto and Josh Bell earlier that day, I made the joke on Twitter about how Jacob DeGrom is getting one final rehab start against a AAA team because it was a AAA lineup, essentially. But the Nationals were the biggest home underdog in years. They were plus 300, and I took them, and I made some money off of it. And I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. I'm happy about it. And the Nationals, by the way, this is just funny. So I do this all the time on the podcast where I want to kind of humanize myself a little bit more. I end up talking about sports so much, and I kind of want to just have more relaxed conversations. But it's hard because there's no one to, like I said, bounce stuff off of. It's You're just kind of talking into a microphone alone. So you kind of just talk about the points you want to talk about, and that's it. But I do want to share like some more personal stuff also. And I kind of thought to myself, and I told this story to a friend recently, so that's probably why it popped in my head. But when I was watching the Mets, um, I watched the Mets play on, I guess it was that game. The day of the trade deadline that DeGrom started, I watched the Mets against the Nationals. And DeGrom's just mowing them down. The first two guys strike out and look like they don't even have a chance. And then the number three hitter in the order, no one I've ever heard of because... He's the number three hitter, but in the Nationals batting order, hits a ground ball and grounds out to end the inning. And I kind of was like, that guy probably is smiling ear to ear, like so proud of himself that he grounded out against DeGrom. And the story that I thought of was, so I, I play in this baseball league and I've talked about it a few times now. And yesterday, actually, I was, I, I've always wondered how far I've come and my baseball skills from playing in this league. I went to the batting cages yesterday. If you saw my Instagram stories, I didn't have gloves because I'm away still in Michigan and I didn't have my batting gloves or my bats with me. So I got blisters all over my hands, but I went to the batting cages and I went to the cage that was 75 miles an hour and it felt slow. I was out in front of a lot of pitches and I posted a video on Instagram. I didn't write that, but so I I have come a long way, but I remember when I first started in this league and I was telling my friend this the other day, how every freaking at bat, I would foul a pitch off, foul a pitch off, strike out, and then finally, maybe my 15th at-bat of the season, after either walking or striking out every single time, I popped a pitch up to shallow center. I think the center fielder came in and caught the ball, a relatively easy play. But I remember when I made contact, just the feeling I was like, and it went fair, and I was watching, and I started jogging towards first as I saw the center fielder coming in and settling under the high pop-up. I like got back to the dugout and almost couldn't hide my smile. I was ecstatic. Like I made contact. It was 85. I made contact. And I don't know. Yeah, I guess maybe I'm a loser. (laughs) Maybe. But at the same time, like everyone has those moments where an accomplishment for you. And obviously I've come a long way since then. I've gotten a bunch of hits this year. have a few more walks. I mostly ground out. But that's because the shortstops in this league just have way too much range. Um... (laughs) But I've come a long way. And so like you take pride in those little situations. So I thought of that when I watched that guy pop up or he grounded out to start uh, the at-bat. But celebrate the little things. I got back to the dugout. Like I had to hide from my teammates because they were like effing loser, popped up again, never helps the team. And I'm meanwhile so proud of myself that I popped up. (laughs) But uh, yeah, they like, I remember when I first started in the league, I would get to act to the dugout. They're like, what did he throw you there? And I'd be like, I don't know. 
like, was it a breaking ball? Was it a fastball? It's like, no clue. Did he throw a change? No idea. Didn't see it. <laughs> now I get back to the dugout. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, he buckled me with a curveball, whatever. Or yeah, but I was out in front of that changeup, but I hit it pretty good anyway. Like now I could actually know. So celebrate those little things. Um, there was a stat though. And I, I shared this with a friend. I thought this was awesome. Uh, a stat about Max Scherzer in his starts. And this is the most astonishing stat. Cause I said, I made money off of it. Right. I, I took the nationals plus 300. So since 2018, Jacob DeGrom has a 1.94 ERA in 92 starts, which is just insane. But if somebody faded the Mets, bet $100 against the Mets in every single one of those 92 games, he'd be up $2,035 today over the course of those 92 games. The guy has a 1.94 ERA. He's given up less than two earned runs per nine innings in those 92 starts. And yet the Mets have lost so many of those starts that if you bet $100 every time DeGrom started, you'd be up $2,035 right now. That is insane to me. That's just typical Mets. That number blows my mind. And so I was sharing that and I was like, you know what? Keep fading DeGrom. Keep fading the Mets. And when I had a number that was plus 300, I was like, yeah, of course, I'm going to take the Nationals here. I wanted to get to some NFL stuff because football is officially back today. The NFL starts with the Hall of Fame game tonight between the Raiders and the Jaguars. I won't bet on it, hopefully. Maybe I'll just take the under or the over and root for a lot of points. I don't know. Maybe I will bet on it. Who knows? But it's back and that's all that matters. We won't see any starters. They already announced that we're not going to see Trevor Lawrence in the game. That's fine. I don't really care. I just want to see football. So I do want to get to a couple football stories. First of all, Debo Samuels got paid. And there's incentives in his contracts as if he's a running back, like if he gets a certain number of running touchdowns, if he gets a certain number of rushing yards, rushing attempts, all that stuff. So I guess I'm happy for him. Great. Cool. Another story was the Kyler Murray story. I talked about the story where they put the studying um, addendum in his contract that he had to study X number of hours in order for his money to be guaranteed. And they could void the contract if he doesn't study. And then that became a huge story. And they're like, well, we'll take it all out. We didn't realize what a huge story, what a huge distraction it would create. And now it's an even bigger story. The fact that you took it out, now it's a bigger problem. Now it's like, okay, is he actually going to study? Is he not going to study? Now people are going to be looking at it even more. Uh, So it's kind of funny that they took it out of the contract, which is just whatever. It is what it is. I think if the contract was never made public, if that detail of the contract was never made public, it would probably still be in there. If you're Kyler Murray, how much could you complain already? You complained, you unfollowed the team on social media because you were angry you didn't get your extension. So you got your huge extension. But there was an addendum in the contract with all this guaranteed money that you got a quarter of a billion dollars to be complaining about a stupid studying that you have to do to be a good quarterback. If you wanted to be a good quarterback and you wanted to really study and be great at football, then why would you care that there's an addendum that's saying that you need to study in the contract? I don't get that, but whatever. It's not in the contract anymore. And now when he fails, everyone's going to laugh like, oh, it's because it's not in the contract. It's because they're not forcing him to study. So good for you, Kyler. You get what you want. The Deshaun Watson situation is crazy. So I talked about this on last episode where they thought, or they being the NFLPA, they wanted about nine games. The Watson side said they wanted him to be suspended eight to nine games. The NFL was looking at more like 12 games is what they said at the time. But we obviously knew that they were going to come down pretty lightly on Deshaun Watson in the case because of how the NFLPA reacted to the suspension before it happened, reacted to the news of the suspension being announced. And sure enough, the next morning, right after the podcast was released, which 
my bad. I posted it for some reason to be posted the following morning on Tuesday morning instead of Monday morning. And I noticed when I woke up on Monday morning and I had to repost it, reschedule it. So um, that's why the podcast was not available. And had it been available, it would have been available actually before the Deshaun Watson verdict came out. Instead, it was a couple hours or maybe an hour after the Deshaun Watson verdict where I was talking about the difference between the nine games, the 12 games, and instead he got six. And of course, the reaction was exactly what I predicted. People were outraged, and rightfully so. So everyone's upset. How could he only get six games, blah, blah, blah. He did this, comparing it to other people. Whether you compare it to other people or not, doesn't matter. I, I pointed that out also. But the weird part is, and Amy Dash has been all over this, who I've worked with a little bit. She works for Odyssey. Um, she's a lawyer and she is a sports broadcaster who goes on different sports shows and talks about sports law. She has a website um, dedicated to sports law. She talked about um, this weird discrepancy that we're seeing where the judge said that he actually sexually assaulted these women and she proved, she was able to prove that he did sexually assault these women and yet he still only got six games. Like that doesn't make sense at all. That's the part that's really weird about it. So what ended up happening is the NFL, they didn't want this story to drag on, but it's going to drag on now. They appealed the suspension and Deshaun Watson's party is suing the NFL over the appeal. So basically what happens now is Roger Goodell has taken it out of his hands because people have complained about suspensions in the past. He has taken suspensions completely out of his hands and that's why they bring in an arbitrator who is totally independent and unbiased. So they bring in someone who's independent and unbiased to rule the case. She ruled the case. The NFL didn't like it. They got terrible backlash from it. So now Roger Goodell has to come out, change his stance, change what happened. And guess who gets to rule on whether on what Deshaun Watson's fate is going to be going forward? Oh, you guessed it, Roger Goodell. So all this was just a fun little game that we played where we said, hey, Roger Goodell is going to rule on this. He's not going to actually, he's going to give it to an independent judge. Then the independent judge makes her ruling, and guess what? The NFL appeals it, and now it's back in the hands of Roger Goodell. So it's going to be an interesting situation. The NFL has already proposed a year minimum and indefinitely, so they're suspending him for a year at least and not reinstating him yet even after that. And if you read what's come out in this court case, that's what makes sense because what he did was awful. So a year at least, yeah, it makes sense that that's what he should get. After the appeal, I don't know what it'll be. Maybe it'll be down to a year. Maybe it'll end up being 12 games. But it's going to drag on for a while, and it's a bad look for football. It's a bad look for the NFL that you brought in a judge who's totally supposed to be independent, and she judged one way, and now you're putting it back in your own hands if you're Roger Goodell. Yeah, it's not a great look for the NFL. But at the same time, they needed to do it because the opposite was also not a good look. And that's what I said. It was going to be a lose-lose situation for the NFL and Roger Goodell no matter what. In other news, the Dolphins, their owner, was suspended for the first six games of the season, and they lost a first-round pick and were fined a lot of money because they were tampering with Tom Brady. Nothing to do with throwing games. They said that was a joke, quote-unquote. Um, and that was a funny situation where Brian Flores feels vindicated, and so does the owner. They're both like, haha, we were right. Where they agreed with Flores, kind of, but they also kind of said that they didn't get punished for it, so both guys are right. I don't know. But they were fined and suspended and lost a draft pick for tampering. 
tampering with Tom Brady. They wanted Tom Brady and they wanted Sean Payton to take over as their head coach and they wanted Tom Brady to be their quarterback and maybe a part-time owner. Apparently, they tampered with Tom Brady twice that they tried to get him, once when he was on the Patriots and one this past once this past year, which we all talked about and we all kind of knew was happening when he quote-unquote retired from the Buccaneers. And by the way, if you don't think this means anything, if you think it's like, well, when was the last time a team got charged with tampering charges when they actually didn't get the player? I don't know. It's kind of funny, but it means a lot. It means one main thing to me. They don't trust Tua no matter what they tell you. And no matter what Tyree Kill says about him being the most accurate quarterback in the league, they don't trust Tua Tungavailoa. If they trusted Tua, they wouldn't be trying to go after a 45-year-old quarterback. Happy birthday, Tom Brady turned 45 yesterday. Zach Wilson turned 23. Great. But if you really trusted Tua, you wouldn't be going after a 45 quarterback, so that's what you tell me. And Hollywood Brown, enough of this. Like, again, I talked about this a while ago when Henry Ruggs killed someone. Does it take killing someone for people to learn a lesson? Because apparently Hollywood Brown did not learn the lesson. Driving 126 miles an hour while under the influence is not okay. And I hope he goes to prison along with Henry Ruggs. That's all I have to say about that. Like I said, my troll is back. Um, He's been, or she, I don't know who it is, been on their game just replying to all my content and knows my content really well. So I know you're probably listening. Thank you. And you also have endless accounts. Like, do you really need like 17 accounts? Do you need all those accounts? to come at me from i don't mind but it's just kind of funny um and lastly the one thing he did do was he was the one who told me about vin scully i did not know that vin scully died until uh he pointed it out so i found out in not the best way that vin scully died i didn't want to find out that way um but then i saw on twitter and i had to fact check it because i was like is this guy just trolling me what's going on um and then i found out so I do want to talk about Vince Scully for a couple minutes here, and we'll wrap up with that. First of all, if you just look at what he did in his career and the accomplishments that he had, no matter who the person was, no matter who his voice was or any of that stuff, it's unbelievable what he's accomplished, what one person has been able to accomplish. 67 years of broadcasting. He started when he was 22 years old. He announced three perfect games, including Don Larson's perfect game in the World Series. He announced 25 World Series, 20 no-hitters, 12 All-Star games. He called Hank Aaron's 715th home run. He was there for Jackie Robinson in Brooklyn. He was there for the move to Los Angeles. Of course, the Kirk Gibson home run is probably the greatest moment in, for sure, recent moment in Dodgers history. And he's in the middle of all of it. And so when you think about a guy who's done that much and been part of so much, he's accomplished more than anyone. And yet, he was the most humble guy. He was the voice of baseball. That's what people called him because he represented baseball and he treated it like it was just a conversation. He talks about how he was just talking through games and every single person who tries to be a broadcaster or tries to do anything in media and sports is trying to emulate him. And they should be because he was that special a dude. Look, he had the dream job. That is the job that ultimately I would want and a lot of people would want. Yes, he was very blessed. He was very gifted, but he always looked at it as, no, I am not gifted. I'm not blessed. I'm so blessed because other people are making me special. I'm not doing anything special, but it's everyone else. And there are so many stories. Every single person came out with a story about how much they appreciated him and how much he did for them personally. My favorite story was the Joe Davis story that he told. 
He's now the broadcaster of the Dodgers. He's also the broadcaster of MLB on Fox. And he said that when he first started with the Dodgers, he first met Vince Scully. Vince Scully called him, and it was an unrecognized number on his phone, so he didn't answer. And Vince Scully called him a second time, and he didn't answer again. And then he gets a voicemail pop-up, and he listens to the phone, and he goes, Hi, it's Vince Scully. I guess I've started our relationship oh for 2. And it was just funny. He's like, Everything came back to baseball, and he just talked that way. That's who he was. He was just being himself. He wasn't trying to have this oh, a great broadcasting. He was just talking about a game that he loved, and he did it in such an incredible way. And the way he told stories during games, everyone's posting a different clip now on Twitter and Instagram. If you see, if you go look, of Vince Scully and their favorite story that he's told on the air. And throughout the stories, he's broadcasting the game impeccably. Doesn't miss a pitch. Doesn't miss a description while he's telling these stories and he weaves them perfectly into the broadcast. He was literally the best to ever do it. He was almost like a poet. He was almost like singing. And he always said it was just a long conversation. And if I could be as good as him one day, if I could be even close to as good as him, he's the guy that everyone looks up to. He's the idol. And I, I I just want to, I always talk about the different broadcasters and the people. And I want to just appreciate today's greats because when you can appreciate today's greats, then you take advantage of everything that they have to offer. And I think this is a guy who lived a full life and listening back to all this stuff, I hope no one took it for granted that you had an opportunity to listen to this person. And so for one last time, I'm going to play this on the podcast. This was his goodbye to baseball in 2016 before he retired. And it's just perfect. Many years ago, a little red-headed boy was walking home from school, passing a Chinese laundry, and stopped to see the score of a World Series game posted in the window. The Yankees beat the Giants 18-4 on October the 2nd, 1936. Well, the boy's reaction was pity for the Giants, and he became a rabid Giants fan from that day forward until the joyous moment when he was hired to broadcast Brooklyn Dodger games in 1950. Ironically, October the 2nd, 2016, will mark my final broadcast of a Giants-Dodger game. And it will be exactly 80 years to the day since that little boy fell in love with baseball. God has been very generous to that little boy, allowing him to fulfill a dream of becoming a broadcaster and to live it for 67 years. Since 1958, you and I have really grown up together through the good times and the bad. The transistor radio is what bound us together. By the way, were you at the Coliseum when we sang happy birthday to an umpire? Were you among the crowd that groaned at one of my puns? Or did you kindly laugh at one of my little jokes? Did I put you to sleep? with a transistor radio tucked under your pillow. You know, you were simply always there for me. I've always felt that I needed you more than you needed me, and that holds true to this very day. I've been privileged to share in your passion and love for this great game. My family means everything to me, and I'll now be able to share life's experiences with them. 
my wife Sandy, our children Kevin, Todd, Aaron, Kelly, and Catherine, along with our entire family, will join me in sharing God's blessings of that precious gift of time. You folks have truly been the wind beneath my wings, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me on this incredible journey of 67 years of broadcasting Dodger baseball. You know, friends, so many people have wished me congratulations on a 67-year career in baseball, and they've wished me a wonderful retirement with my family. And now, all I can do is tell you what I wish for you. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. For every problem life seems a faithful friend to share, for every sigh a sweet song, and an answer for each prayer. You and I have been friends for a long time, but I know in my heart that I've always needed you more than you've ever needed me. And I'll miss our time together more than I can say. But you know what? There will be a new day and eventually a new year. And when the upcoming winter gives way to spring, oh, rest assured, once again, it will be time for Dodger baseball. So this is Vin Scully wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon wherever you may be. Not much else to say. Like, that's all there is to say. He said it all. Um, he's going to be missed. And he was a huge part of baseball. And for someone like me, he's someone that, like I said, I can look up to and I can learn from. So not as a baseball broadcaster, but as a human being, even more than that. So that's going to do it. I'm going to wrap it up here. I actually have a huge episode coming out, a different episode. We're going to do something interesting. So I'll have more information on it. Uh, that's going to be coming out hopefully before the weekend. Um, and so I will keep you posted on that. If you follow me on social media, you'll get more updates. Everything else, like, subscribe, follow, all that good stuff. Until next time, see ya. You were the best nights of my life. You got the light that always shines. I miss the way that you move and the way I get high. When you take me to your eyes, like I'm standing in the sky. Your subway cars and your old graffiti I breathe your air when I land in another city I'll be that one that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Sidewalks burning, we pray for rain in July. I want the Yankees 99, yeah. and the Knicks on a sold out night. When the curtains close and the Broadway streets are alive, hey. I need your heartbeat close, don't you ever leave?
another city And I'll be that one that's got you printed on my bones